Chapter 5, Book 5 of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book 5, Chapter 5. The Sarcophagus. So now tis ended, like an old wife's story. Webster. Notwithstanding the obscurity which hung over the fate of Lady Rookwood, the celebration of the nuptials of Sir Ranulph and Eleanor was not long delayed. The ceremony took place at the parish church, and the worthy vicar officiated upon the occasion. It was a joyous sight to all who witnessed it, and not few were they who did so, for the whole neighbourhood was bidden to the festival. The old avenue was thronged with bright and beaming faces, rustic maidens decked out in ribbons of many-coloured splendour, and stout youths in their best holiday trim. Nor was the lusty yeoman and his buxom spouse, nor yet the patriarch of the village, nor the prattling child wanting. Even the ancestral rooks seemed to participate in the universal merriment, and returned, from their eyries a hoarse greeting, like a lusty chorus of laughter to the frolic train. The churchyard path was strewn with flowers, the church itself a complete garland. Never was there seen a blither wedding. The sun smiled upon the bride, accounted a fortunate omen, as dark lowering skies and stormy weather had, within the memory of the oldest of the tenantry, inauspiciously ushered in all former espousals. The bride had recovered her bloom and beauty, while the melancholy which had seemingly settled forever upon the open brow of the bridegroom had now given place to a pensive shade that only added interest to his expressive features. And, as in simple state, after the completion of the sacred rites, the youthful pair walked arm in arm amongst their thronging and admiring tenants towards the hall. Many a fervent prayer was breathed that the curse of the house of Rookwood might be averted from their heads. And, not to leave a doubt upon the subject, we can add that these aspirations were not in vain, but that the day which dawned so brightly was one of serene and unclouded happiness to its close. After the ceremonial, the day was devoted to festivity. Crowded with company, from the ample hall to the kitchen ingle, the old mansion could scarce contain its numerous guests, while the walls resounded with hearty peals of laughter to which they had long been unaccustomed. The tables groaned beneath the lordly baron of beef, the weighty chine, the castled pasty flanked on the one hand with neat tongue, and on the other defended by a mountainous ham. An excellent piece de resistance, and every other substantial appliance of ancient hospitality. Barrels of mighty ale were broached, and their nut-brown contents widely distributed, and the health of the bride and bridegroom was enthusiastically drunk in a brimming wassail-cup of spicy wine with floating toast. Titus Tyrconnell acted as master of the ceremonies, and was, Mr. Coach declared, quite in his element. So much was he elated that he ventured to cut some of his old jokes upon the vicar, and, strange to say, without incurring the resentment of Small. To retrace the darker course of our narrative, we must state that some weeks before this happy event, the remains of the unfortunate Sir Luke Rookwood had been gathered to those of his fathers. 
the document that attested his legitimacy being found upon his person, the claims denied to him in life were conceded in death, and he was interred, with all the pomp and peculiar solemnity proper to one of the house, within the tomb of his ancestry. It was then that a discovery was made respecting Alan Rookwood, in order to explain which we must again revert to the night of the meditated enlavement of Eleanor. After quitting his grandson in the avenue, Alan shaped his course among the fields in the direction to the church. He sought his own humble but now deserted dwelling. The door had been forced. Some of its meagre furniture was removed, and the dog, his sole companion, had fled. "'Poor Mole,' said he, "'thou hast found, I trust, a better master.' And having possessed himself of what he came in search, namely, a bunch of keys and his lantern, deposited in an out-of-the-way cupboard that had escaped notice, he quickly departed. He was once more within the churchyard, and once more upon that awful stage whereon he had chosen to enact, for a long season, his late fantastical character. And he gazed upon the church tower, glistening in the moonshine, the green and undulating hillocks, the chequered cross-sticks, the clustered headstones, and the black and portentous yew-trees, as upon old familiar faces. He mused for a few moments upon the scene, apparently with deep interest. He then walked beneath the shadows of one of the yews, chanting an odd stanza or so of one of his wild staves, wrapped the while, it would seem, in affectionate contemplation of the subject-matter of his song. THE CHURCHYARD YEW Metuendac succo taxus statius. A noxious tree is the churchyard yew, as if from the dead its sap it drew. Dark are its branches, and dismal to see, like plumes at death's latest solemnity. Spectral and jagged, and black as the wings, which some spirit of ill or a sepulchre flings. Oh, a terrible tree is the churchyard yew, like it is nothing so grimly to view. Yet this baleful tree hath a core so sound, can not so tough in the grove be found. From it were fashioned brave English bows, the boast of our isle, and the dread of its foes. For our sturdy sires cut their stoutest staves, from the branch that hung o'er their father's graves. And though it be dreary and dismal to view, staunch at the heart is the churchyard you. His ditty concluded, Alan entered the churchyard, taking care to leave the door slightly ajar, in order to facilitate his grandson's entrance. For an instant he lingered in the chancel, the yellow moonlight fell upon the monuments of his race, and, directed by the instinct of hate, Alan's eye rested upon the gilded entablature of his perfidious brother, Reginald, and muttering curses, not loud, but deep, he passed on. Having lighted his lantern in no tranquil mood, he descended into the vault, observing a similar caution with respect to the portal of the cemetery, which he left partially unclosed, with the key in the lock. Here he resolved to abide Luke's coming. The reader knows what probability there was of his expectations being realised. For a while he paced the tomb, wrapped in gloomy meditation, and pondering, it might be, upon the result of Luke's expedition, and the fulfilment of his own dark schemes, scowling from time to time beneath his bent eyebrows, counting the grim array of coffins, and noticing with something like satisfaction that the shell which contained the remains of his daughter had been restored to its former position. 
He then bethought him of Father Checkley's midnight intrusion upon his conference with Luke, and their apprehension of a supernatural visitation, and his curiosity was stimulated to ascertain by what means the priest had gained admission to the spot, unperceived and unheard. He resolved to sound the floor, and see whether any secret entrance existed, and hollowly and dully did the hard flagging return the stroke of his heel as he pursued his scrutiny. At length the metallic ringing of an iron plate, immediately behind the marble effigy of Sir Ranulph, resolved the point. There it was that the priest had found access to the vault, but Alan's disappointment was excessive when he discovered that the plate was fastened on the underside, and all communication thence with the churchyard, or to wherever else it might conduct him, cut off. But the present was not the season for further investigation, and tolerably pleased with the discovery he had already made, he returned to his silent march round the sepulchre. At length a sound, like the sudden shutting of the church door, broke upon the profound stillness of the holy edifice. In the hush that succeeded, a footstep was distinctly heard threading the aisle. "'He comes! He comes!' exclaimed Alan joyfully, adding, an instant after, in an altered voice, "'But he comes alone!' The footstep drew near to the mouth of the vault. It was upon the stairs. Alan stepped forward to greet, as he supposed, his grandson, but started back in astonishment and dismay as he encountered in his stead Lady Rookwood. Alan retreated while the lady advanced, swinging the iron door after her, which closed with a tremendous clang. Approaching the statue of the first Sir Ranulph, she paused, and Alan then remarked the singular and terrible expression of her eyes, which appeared to be fixed upon the statue, or upon some invisible object near it. There was something in her whole attitude and manner calculated to impress the deepest terror on the beholder, and Alan gazed upon her with an awe which momently increased. Lady Rookwood's bearing was as proud and erect as we have formerly described it to have been. Her brow was haughtily bent, her chiselled lip as disdainfully curled, but the staring, changeless eye and the deep-heaved sob which occasionally escaped her betrayed how much she was under the influence of mortal terror. Alan watched her in amazement. He knew not how the scene was likely to terminate, nor what could have induced her to visit this ghostly spot at such an hour, and alone. But he resolved to abide the issue in silence, profound as her own. After a time, however, his impatience got the better of his fears and scruples, and he spoke. "'What doth Lady Rookwood in the abode of the dead?' asked he, at length. She started at the sound of his voice, but still kept her eye fixed upon the vacancy. "'Hast thou not beckoned me hither, and am I not come?' returned she, in a hollow tone. "'And now thou askest wherefore I am here. I am here because, as in thy life I fear thee not, neither in death do I fear thee. I am here because—' "'What seest thou?' interrupted Peter, with ill-suppressed terror. "'What I see!' shouted Lady Rookwood, amidst discordant laughter. "'That which might appall a heart less stout than mine, a figure anguish-ridden, with veins that glow as with a subtle and consuming flame, a substance yet a shadow in thy living likeness. Ah, frown if thou wilt!' I can return thou glances. Where dost thou see this vision? 
demanded Alan. "'Where?' echoed Lady Rookwood, becoming for the first time sensible of the presence of a stranger. "'Ha! Who are you that question me? What are you? Speak!' "'No matter who or what I am,' returned Alan. "'I ask you what you behold. Can you see nothing?' "'Nothing,' replied Alan. "'You knew Sir Piers Rookwood?' "'Is it he?' asked Alan, drawing near her. "'It is,' replied Lady Rookwood. "'I have followed him hither, and I will follow him whithersoever he leads me. "'Were it too?' "'What doth he now?' asked Alan. "'Do you see him still?' "'The figure points to that sarcophagus,' returned Lady Rookwood. "'Can you raise up the lid?' "'No,' replied Alan. "'My strength will not avail to lift it.' "'Yet let the trial be made,' said Lady Rookwood. "'The figure points there still. "'My own arm shall aid you.' Alan watched her in dumb wonder. She advanced towards the marble monument and beckoned him to follow. He reluctantly complied. Without any expectation of being able to move the ponderous lid of the sarcophagus, at Lady Rookwood's renewed request, he applied himself to the task. What was his surprise when, beneath their united efforts, he found the ponderous slab slowly revolve upon its vast hinges, and, with little further difficulty, it was completely elevated. Though it still required the exertion of all Alan's strength to prop it open and prevent it falling back. "'What does it contain?' asked Lady Rookwood. "'A warrior's ashes,' returned Alan. "'There is a rusty dagger upon a fold of faded linen,' cried Lady Rookwood, holding down the light. "'It is the weapon with which the first dame of the house of Rookwood was stabbed,' said Alan, with a grim smile. "'Which whoso findeth in the tomb shall clutch until the hour of doom, "'and when tis grasped by hand of clay, the curse of blood shall pass away. "'So saith the rhyme. Have you seen enough?' "'No,' said Lady Rookwood, precipitating herself into the marble coffin. "'That weapon shall be mine.' "'Come forth, come forth,' cried Alan. "'My arm trembles. I cannot support the lid. "'I will have it, though I grasp it to eternity,' shrieked Lady Rookwood, "'vainly endeavouring to wrest away the dagger, which was fastened, "'together with the linen upon which it lay, "'by some adhesive substance to the bottom of the shell.' At this moment, Alan Rookwood happened to cast his eye upward, and he then beheld what filled him with new terror. The axe of the sable statue was poised above its head, as in the act to strike him. Some secret machinery, it was evident, existed between the sarcophagus lid and this mysterious image. But in the first impulse of his alarm, Alan abandoned his hold of the slab, and it sunk slowly downwards. He uttered a loud cry as it moved, Lady Rookwood heard this cry. She raised herself at the same moment. The dagger was in her hand. She pressed it against the lid, but its downward force was too great to be withstood. The light was within the sarcophagus, and Alan could discern her features. The expression was terrible. She uttered one shriek, and the lid closed for ever. Alan was in total darkness. The light had been enclosed with Lady Rookwood. There was something so horrible in her probable fate that even he shuddered as he thought upon it. Exerting all his remaining strength, he essayed to raise the lid, but it was now more firmly closed than ever. 
it defied all his power. Once, for an instant, he fancied that it yielded to his straining sinews, but it was only his hand that slid upon the surface of the marble. It was fixed, immovable. The sides and lid rang with the strokes which the unfortunate lady bestowed upon them with the dagger's point, but those sounds were not long heard. Presently, all was still. The marble ceased to vibrate with her blows. Alan struck the lid with his knuckles, but no response was returned. All was silent. He now turned his attention to his own situation, which had become sufficiently alarming. An hour must have elapsed, yet Luke had not arrived. The door of the vault was closed. The key was in the lock and on the outside. He was himself a prisoner within the tomb. What if Luke should not return? What if he were slain, as it might chance, in the enterprise? That thought flashed across his brain like an electric shock. None knew of his retreat but his grandson. He might perish of famine within this desolate vault. He checked this notion as soon as it was formed. It was too dreadful to be indulged in. A thousand circumstances might conspire to detain Luke. He was sure to come, yet the solitude, the darkness, was awful almost intolerable. The dying and the dead were around him. He dared not stir. Another hour, an age it seemed to him, had passed. Still Luke came not. Horrible forebodings crossed him, but he would not surrender himself to them. He rose and crawled in the direction, as he supposed, of the door, fearful even of the stealthy sound of his own footsteps. He reached it, and his heart once more throbbed with hope. He bent his ear to the key. He drew in his breath. He listened for some sound, but nothing was to be heard. A groan would have been almost music in his ears. Another hour was gone. He was now a prey to the most frightful apprehensions, agitated in turns by the wildest emotions of rage and terror. He at one moment imagined that Luke had abandoned him, and heaped curses upon his head, at the next, convinced that he had fallen, he bewailed with equal bitterness his grandson's fate and his own. He paced the tomb like one distracted. He stamped upon the iron plate. He smote with his hands upon the door. He shouted, and the vault hollowly echoed his lamentations. But time's sand ran on, and Luke arrived not. Alan now abandoned himself wholly to despair. He could no longer anticipate his grandson's coming, no longer hope for deliverance. His fate was sealed. Death awaited him. He must anticipate his slow but inevitable stroke, enduring all the grinding horrors of starvation. The contemplation of such an end was madness. But he was forced to contemplate it now, and so appalling did it appear to his imagination that he half resolved to dash out his brains against the walls of the sepulchre, and put an end at once to his tortures, and nothing except to doubt whether he might not, by imperfectly accomplishing his purpose, increase his own suffering, prevented him from putting this dreadful idea into execution. His dagger was gone, and he had no other weapon. Terrors of a new kind now assailed him. The dead, he fancied, were bursting from their coffins, and he peopled the darkness with grisly phantoms. They were about him on each side, whirling and rustling, gibbering, groaning, shrieking, laughing and lamenting. He was stunned, stifled. The air seemed to grow suffocating, pestilential. 
the wild laughter was redoubled the horrible troop assailed him they dragged him along the tomb and amid their howls he fell and became insensible when he returned to himself it was some time before he could recollect his scattered faculties and when the agonizing consciousness of his terrible situation forced itself upon his mind he had nigh relapsed into oblivion he arose he rushed towards the door he knocked against it with his knuckles till the blood streamed from them he scratched against it with his nails till they were torn off by the roots with insane fury he hurled himself against the iron frame it was in vain again he had recourse to the trap-door he searched for it he found it he laid himself upon the ground there was no interval of space in which he could insert a finger's point he beat it with his clenched hand he tore it with his teeth he jumped upon it he smote it with his heel the iron returned a sullen sound he again essayed the lid of the sarcophagus despair nerved his strength he raised the slab a few inches he shouted screamed but no answer was returned and again the lid fell she's dead cried alan why have i not shared her fate but mine is to come and such a death oh and frenzied at the thought he again hurried to the door and renewed his fruitless attempts to escape till nature gave way and he sank upon the floor groaning and exhausted physical suffering now began to take place of his mental tortures parched and consumed with a fierce internal fever he was tormented by unappeasable thirst of all human ills the most unendurable his tongue was dry and dusty his throat inflamed his lips had lost all moisture he licked the humid floor he sought to imbibe the nitrous drops from the walls but instead of allaying his thirst they increased it he would have given the world had he possessed it for a draught of cold spring water oh to have died with his lips upon some bubbling mountain's marge but to perish thus nor were the pangs of hunger wanting he had to endure all the horrors of famine as well as the agonies of quenchless thirst in this dreadful state three days and nights passed over alan's fated head nor night nor day had he time with him was only measured by its duration and that seemed interminable each hour added to his suffering and brought with it no relief during this period of prolonged misery reason often tottered on her throne sometimes he was under the influence of the wildest passions he dragged coffins from their recesses hurled them upon the ground striving to break them open and drag forth their loathsome contents upon other occasions he would weep bitterly and wildly and once only once did he attempt to pray but he started from his knees with an echo of infernal laughter as he deemed ringing in his ears then again would he call down imprecations upon himself and his whole line trampling upon the pile of coffins he had reared and lastly more subdued would creep to the boards that contained the body of his child kissing them with a frantic outbreak of affection at length he became sensible of his approaching dissolution to him the thought of death might well be terrible but he quailed not before it or rather seemed in his latest moments to resume all his wonted firmness of character gathering together his remaining strength he dragged himself towards the niche wherein his brother sir reginald rookwood was deposited and placing his hand upon the coffin solemnly exclaimed my curse my dying curse 
be upon thee evermore. Falling with his face upon the coffin, Alan instantly expired. In this attitude, his remains were discovered. End of chapter 5, book 5